Who is wise and understanding among you? Let him show it by his good life, by deeds done in the humility that comes from wisdom. But if you harbor bitter envy and selfish ambition in your hearts, do not boast about it or deny the truth. Such wisdom does not come down from heaven, but it is earthly, unspiritual of the devil. For where you have envy and selfish ambition, there you find disorder and every evil practice. But the wisdom that comes from heaven is first of all pure, then peace-loving, considerate, submissive, full of mercy and good fruit, impartial and sincere. Peacemakers who sow in peace raise a harvest of righteousness. Amen. Um, I do want to ask you to reference the front page of the bulletin and please review the thank you message from me if you haven't already. I wish I could just go around the room and give every single one of you a hug. That would be uh, awesome. I just tell you personally how much I want to thank you for your support and encouragement. And God is doing something very special here. So my encouragement to you is let him. <laughs> just let him keep doing that special thing and we'll, uh, we'll see what happens. Uh, second, you know, you've been my church family for the past nine months. I'm going to miss you all. I'm really going to miss you. I've, I've just fallen in love with this, this church family and uh, appreciate so much the fuel that you've put into my tank. You know, we've gotten close. Uh, I, I, I rejoice when you rejoice. I mourn when you mourn. You know, the unexpected passing of our brother Dale a few weeks back and, and then um, our brother Wayne, you know, that hurts my heart. Uh, you know, I, I've missed these past couple of Sundays, him running over my toes with his walker, you know, uh, and uh, praise God, he's free from that thing, right? And uh, he's, uh, he's in, in a new body and, uh, and with the Lord, and so we're thankful for that. But just want you to know, you all are and you will remain in my prayers. Um, I, I want to introduce a song to you this morning. Do we have those lyrics, Mike, that are listed uh, here? So... Um, I just want to preach a few thoughts this morning from the book of Titus. And I was trying to think about setting this up. And, and there's a song that was written, I think maybe in the 80s, I can't remember, possibly early 90s, uh, called, Lord, uh, Make Us Instruments of Your Peace. And it's a song and it's a prayer at the same time. And um, we don't have time to teach it this morning, but it's a very simple melody. And I think it just so beautifully encapsulates the message from Paul to Titus and ultimately to the church. So I just want us to sing it together. And then just for a few moments, we'll be in the book of Titus. If you don't know it, just listen the first time through. And you can uh, jump on board whenever you feel comfortable doing so. The song goes like this. Lord, make us instruments of your peace. Where there is hatred, let your love Oh. 
pray that prayer every morning and then can you imagine if we live that prayer every day I just think it's a game changer and it's the message from Paul to his young apprentice Titus an older evangelist speaking to a younger evangelist and he wants him to know a few things um, and I just want us to look a little bit at the structure this morning of this incredible letter and then examine some ways that Paul wants um, what he shares with Timothy and with the churches on the Isle of Crete, what he wants them to understand and put in practice. And if you're a guest, uh, the Mesa Church of Christ and I have been working together for the past nine months to better understand who we are, to build on the foundation of those who have gone on before, and to hire the church's next preaching minister who will be here in early June. And that's why we're having this conversation and this celebration today. A little bit about Paul's letter to Titus, a quick context. The island of Crete did not have a good reputation. Uh, the Greek word for to be a liar was kretizo, or it literally means to be a Cretan. We still hear that word occasionally today, right? Have you ever said of somebody, oh, he's such a Cretan? Uh, and so it's not a good term, okay, when you refer to somebody as a Cretan. In Titus chapter 1 and verse 2, Paul refers to God as God who does not lie. Isn't that fascinating? It's also said in a contrast to the Greek god Zeus, who according to legend was born on Crete. A God who was born, quite fascinating. He was a schemer. Zeus was a liar. He was a seducer of women. Uh, Zeus was just quite a rascal, right? But not our God. Not our God. Who is revealed in Christ? Who, as Paul points out, first thing in his letter to Titus is the God of truth. 
Now, there were a lot of men who lived on the island of Crete. Many of them served as mercenaries to the highest bidder, and many of the cities were known for violence, and they were also known for corruption. And so Paul, with that as a backdrop, writes this letter to Timothy. And in Titus chapter, or Titus rather, and in Titus chapter one, we see Paul greeting his true son in our common faith. Isn't that a beautiful descriptor of a relationship from the older evangelist to the younger Titus? Paul reminds Titus to appoint elders in every town in, in Crete And then he reminds him of the characteristics to look for in those that he will appoint as shepherds of the church. He then contrasts that leadership of such men with the emptiness of those who are corrupt and disobedient. So in short, the leaders of the church are to have a very different reputation than the leaders of Crete. See the difference? Paul pulls very few punches here, even quoting one of their own poets, Epimenides, who noted, Cretans are always liars, evil brutes, lazy gluttons. Titus chapter 1, verse 12. I think that's calling it like it is, right? Some of those corrupt leaders, now in chapter 2, some of those corrupt leaders had made their way into the churches in Crete. And as a result, the house churches there are really in a mess. Things were so bad that God's word was being discredited. Titus 2.5. People were making evil accusations against the church. Titus 2.8. And the Christian message was no longer an appealing alternative, Titus 2.10. So as a result, Paul reviews a family code of conduct in chapter 2 that's pleasing to God. And he paints this very stark difference to the values of those who are profiting from the gospel message without remotely understanding it. And so Paul offers specific counsel here to older men, older women, young men, young women, and those who are in servitude to others. He offers counsel on what living for Jesus looks like as God intended, not what they are seeing happening here in Crete. Paul summarizes why he shares these words with Titus by noting in chapter 2, verses 11 through 14, for the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age. While we wait for the blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. And that leads us then to chapter 3. Paul begins with describing Christians as ideal citizens who are to be subject to rulers and authorities, to be obedient, to be ready to do whatever is good, to slander no one, to be peaceable and considerate, and always to be gentle toward everyone. But how are we going to sustain that? 
Is it derived just from our willpower? Well, not according to Paul. He gives us some insight into the sustaining power source, that which allows us to do this. A beautiful poem in Titus 3, beginning at verse 4. But when the kindness and love of God our Father appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us. Through the washing and rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom he poured out on us generally through Jesus Christ, our Savior, so that having been justified by his grace, we might become heirs, having the hope of eternal life. And what does that mean for this young evangelist, Titus? Paul continues, this is a trustworthy saying. And I want you, Titus, to stress these things so that those who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. And these things are excellent and they are profitable for everyone, not just everyone in the body, but everyone in the community. And ultimately, as our witness bears fruit to the world. So, what might we draw from the book of Titus as we think about your upcoming partnership with your young evangelist, Jeremy Gills? Well, just a few themes that I think are super important for us to focus on. Theme one, the partnership between an evangelist and shepherds is about much more than structure. It is about pointing people to the Savior. And so I want to encourage you, church, to not just pray for Jeremy and not just pray for your shepherds and not just pray for the members of your ministry team, Joel and Edison, and the many volunteers who lead very, many, many ministries. Don't just pray that the structure is sound. Pray that the relationship is sound. Pray that they are men uh, who, who want to work collaboratively together and pray that God will protect them from the attacks of the evil one because they have very, very important work to do here. And remember, they individually and as they work together collectively have in their heart of hearts a desire to point people to Jesus. So please, please pray for them in that pursuit. Second, the partnership between an evangelist and the congregation is based on truth and trust. I think we see that in Titus chapter 1, verses 10 through 16. So do everything you can to be truthful with one another. Don't pretend. Don't wear masks. Be honest, be open, be transparent. Through that, trust will begin to grow in this place. And God can do powerful, powerful things when trust levels are high. Third, and I think we see this in Titus chapter 2, verses 1 through 10. The sermon is generally delivered by one, but church, it needs to be modeled by everyone. 
It's generally spoken by one, but it needs to be modeled by all for it to be powerful. I hope that you don't just come in here so that you can say, well, we did the church thing today, we're good. I hope you'll bring a pencil and I hope you'll bring a paper or some type of a pad or something to take some notes on and, and, and do this deep dive in the Word of God week after week after week, not just to give mental assent to it, but to choose to go out and to live it out Four, we all, everyone in this community, point people to God's saving grace through Jesus. There is a ripple effect that is in play here. This is such a beautiful passage. I just want to revisit it quickly again. Notice the the past tense reality of where all of us were. At one time, we too were foolish. We were disobedient, deceived, and enslaved by all kinds of passions and pleasures. We lived in malice and envy, being hated and hating one another. But, but when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. We've already read that passage, but notice the ripple effect. This is trustworthy. I want you to stress these things, Timothy, so that, or, or Titus, so that those of you who have trusted in God may be careful to devote themselves to doing what is good. These things are excellent and profitable to everyone. Paul is speaking in first person singular here. You, Titus, you, young evangelist, for a reason, so that those who have trusted in this message, I want you to be about sharing this good news. And by everyone, he means everyone. Five, stirring up trouble in God's family is not a spiritual gift, okay? It's not a spiritual gift. Uh, Paul builds here on the foundational teachings of Jesus himself on the Sermon on the Mount. And I want you to notice how Jesus addresses the nature of our relationships in Matthew 7. He says, do not judge or you too will be judged. The Greek word for judge in Matthew 7 is krino. The word, it's uh, not in itself necessarily negative, often used as a general term for forming judgments and reaching conclusions about things and people. You know, I could say, oh, that light's pretty far up there in the ceiling. Okay, I just made a judgment about the height of that light, so it's not necessarily a bad thing. But in this case, Jesus warns against pronouncing guilt on others and determining their fate. Jesus basically says, do not set yourself up over others. Criticize their failings and make pronouncements on their guilt before God. And we have a tendency to stop there. To use Matthew 7, 1 to justify our sins on the one hand as in who are you to judge? Or to neglect the sins of somebody else as who am I to judge? But we can't stop there because Jesus doesn't stop there. To properly understand this verse, we have to read the entire section to understand that this passage is not so much about judgment as it's about hypocrisy. So notice what happens in Matthew 7 too. For in the same way you judge others, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. You see, when followers of Jesus develop critical, condemning attitude as the lens through which we view others, we push love out of our relationship with others. The kind of love that Jesus offers fills us and allows us to give the goodness of God to others, not condemnation. Jesus echoes his own teaching here from earlier, blessed are the merciful, for they will be shown what? Mercy. You see, true followers of Jesus who have not just, we've not just received God's mercy, we've been overcome by it. And as a result, we're going to show mercy to one another, not judgment, 
If anybody understands forgiveness, it should be us. Amen? And what we've been given, we freely give. Should we choose otherwise, there is a reciprocal principle that is in play here. Be careful when you set yourself up as a fault finder because it will potentially come right back at you. The message uses some very helpful imagery for us to get what Jesus is saying. Don't pick on people. Jump on their failures. Criticize their faults unless, of course, you want that same treatment. That critical spirit has a way of boomeranging. In Matthew 6, we see Jesus warning those who are more concerned about outward appearance of righteousness than actually being righteous. And now he lets his disciples know that they must fully align their heads and their hearts with his. Otherwise, they may fall into this same hypocritical trap. To set this up, Jesus uses quite the comical illustration. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, hey, let me take that speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own eye, you hypocrite? First, Take the plank out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Jesus would have been very familiar with this real-life imagery, a lesson from the carpenter's workshop. It's so over the top, you can almost hear Jesus chuckle as he uses this illustration. It's not inappropriate to be a truth-teller, to try to help someone when they have misstepped. But it is inappropriate to draw attention to another's failures when we have not, in humility, dealt with our own. When Matthew records Jesus' use of the term hypocrite in his gospel account, it's the only place where Jesus uses the term of a disciple rather than of Pharisees or others. Jesus says, be very careful about applying standards to others. You are not living yourself. There's perhaps never been a time in our culture of how important it is that we understand these words and put them into practice. It's become so easy for us to look at culture and see everything that's wrong with everybody else without examining our own motives and our own attitudes in our own behaviors, and we must, with great humility, take our Lord's words to heart if we are to be a unified church that reaches our culture with the good news of Jesus. And we must take Paul's words to heart because people who want to know more about Jesus watch us carefully. When they do look at us, Will they see a wagging finger or will they see a helping hand? Wrapping up. A few years back, I came across a um, team formation dynamic that's really impacted the way that I see interactions with people. Four stages of team development, forming, storming, norming, and performing by Bruce Tuckman. Isn't that catchy? And these are great reminders of what every community of faith can expect when new teams are put together. You're going to form, and when you form, guess what? You are going to storm. It is natural. It is normal. Well, brother so-and-so never did it that way, right? 
That's storming language right there, all right? Uh, we are going to learn different things and different vocabulary and look at things from some different perspectives. And that's okay. That's all right. God has uniquely equipped us to have those different perspectives and ideas and understandings. What we don't want to do is get stuck in the storming phase. Okay? Are you with me? We don't want to get stuck there. Through working together, we can move to norming and then as a church perform. And I think that message is consistent throughout the book of Titus, as well as throughout the entire Word of God. Seven, I want to challenge you, church, to be Jeremy's reinforcements, because I know he's going to try to be yours. I believe that with all my heart. Paul writes as he closes out this letter to Titus, as soon as I send Artemis or Tychicus to you, do your best to come to me at uh, Nicopolis. I've decided to winter there. And he has a few other messages about just helping one another. And I just think that's such powerful imagery. Hey, we're in this together. Time and time again, come along one another. Come alongside one another. Help one another. Encourage one another. That's being the body of Jesus. And I'm going to leave you with this one mark of integrity. And I hope and pray that you will practice this again and again and again. My dear brothers and sisters in Christ, Always talk to one another, not about one another. If we would just practice that one simple principle, it would revolutionize the unity, I think, that is lacking in so many fellowships throughout the world. I love you all. I'm so very grateful for your time uh, and uh, your attention to the Word of God. And I pray that as you live into it and welcome this new minister and his family into your fold, that you're just going to have celebration after celebration after celebration as you sit back in awe and see what God has done. Hey, we're going to stand together. We're going to sing together. If there's anything you want to share with this church body this morning, a prayer request, a decision to be baptized and give your life to Jesus, just come on down to the front. Your elders will meet you here as we sing together.